0: If you'd open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be looking at chapters 2 verses 20 through 22, and uh, it will draw us to the end of chapter 2, and we will be moving next week into chapter 3. Let us go before the Lord and ask Him to open this text to us. Lord, we come before you now. It is our great privilege. Lord, indeed, we may not feel it at this moment, but we ask that you would forgive us that we don't feel that this is our great pleasure to be able to sit here this morning and to hear the word of truth, the word of life, the word that leads us to faith and sustains us in it, the word that gives us hope for the future, even when our present circumstances may not produce in us a sense of hope. Lord, we have confidence that Your Spirit, who by men wrote down the perfect and holy Word of God, is able even this morning to illumine this text to the nourishment of our hearts and the renewal of our minds. And we pray this morning, Lord, that You would make it so in our midst. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. From Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 20. We remember that Paul has just told them back in chapter 19 that they are no longer strangers and aliens, no longer um, outside the citizenship of heaven, but that they are members of the household of God and he begins and says, they are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, for those of you that have looked at the sermon title, you might say, hmm, welcome to God's house. What is He up to here? Well, I want to say this to you. I grew up, and I'm sure many of you grew up in a if you did grow up in the church, grew up in churches where at least your grandparents, if not your parents, would say something like this. No, no, Dennis, don't do that. This is God's house. Dennis, don't run. This is God's house. Don't yell. This is God's house. And all those type of things might be said to you among many. And and there are things that we need to hopefully help enculturate into the lives of our covenant children. And sometimes even some of our, our older children. Um, covenant children with the ways that we remember how we operate when we're in the presence of God. But some of those rules, if we're honest, apply to our household too. I mean, oftentimes we'll tell our children, don't run in the church primarily because you don't run in any building. It's just not safe when people are there. Or we might say to them, you don't scream inside because it hurts people's ears. And that would be true in our home or in the mall or anywhere else we are. There's just a sense in which... Some of these things that we have talked about in God's house are true of just about any house. So why do I say to you then this morning, welcome to God's house? Well, I think that what's happening in this passage is that Paul is challenging in some ways a notion which has become very prevalent among the Western world. And that is to make a location, a physical geographical location, the important thing when it comes to God's people. When it comes to the temple. When it comes to what is God's house. Now let me say this on the front end. It is right. It is proper for God's people to buy land, to build a building, and set those buildings apart for the use and service of God. There's nothing wrong and I'm not preaching against buildings or any such thing. I'm more trying to suggest to us that Paul is challenging us to be careful that we don't place too much attention on a building or a geographical location, but that really it should be looking around this room and saying, this is the people of God. That if we were to go meet at the Boyer's home, they live right down the street, if all of us could fit in there, and we've tried on several occasions when we've had parties at their homes to fit a large number of our congregation into their place, if we had a worship service there, it would be no less a greeting to be said, Welcome to God's house. Even though Steve Boyer and Karen Boyer have their names on the deed. You see, because the location of God's people is wherever God's people are gathered together to worship Him. There the Lord is in their midst. And see, there's an understanding here that Paul is drawing us into which challenges us. Because one of the things we hold near and dear in America is the fact of the right to own property. And these ideas that we have of these things matter. And they should. We should care for these facilities which God has given us. So again, I want to make sure that you hear what I am saying and you also don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a building. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with building one. What I am suggesting is that we need to be careful again of how much value we place in those things versus how much value we place in the people in the children of our churches. So Paul here is drawing us to remember and reminding us that well, he's already told us what is that that we're a new humanity that we're not what we were whether Gentile or Jew we have been drawn in to be The new humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are a part of this new humanity. So therefore, you can't look at ethnicity or geography or any of those things and say, this is now this nation or this people. These are the ones who are called by God. Because guess what, men and women? Even this morning, however long the morning has gone for different people, The reality is is that men and women woke up in China. Boys and girls woke up in China and they gathered together and worshipped the Lord Jesus Christ. People in Mongolia and Thailand. People in Israel. People in Russia. People in all over Europe. In South America, in Central America, in Australia. Australia. There may even be believers that gathered together this morning at some outpost in Antarctica. We have no idea, but what I'm, the point I'm trying to make to you is, is, that across the globe, the nation, if you will, the new humanity, the new community, the temple of the living God gathers together to worship Him as one. They in our midst this morning. We see that ethnic barriers are are broken, that various issues are being realized within our own midst because we have people that represent a variety of people groups who, over the years, have warred with one another. Even those of us from European backgrounds know that England and France had the 100 years war and even England couldn't get along with one another and Scotland and England war and all these groups. And yet here we are as all these different people groups that Christianity has prevailed over that have been drawn together to be a part of the new humanity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we begin to consider that, Paul then wants us to understand this and consider if we are the household of God, then it would make sense that we would understand its foundation. What is the foundation of the house of God? And where is its cornerstone to be seen? What is its structural growth? How does it grow? How does it get built up into this great edifice, this great temple, this great dwelling place? And then finally, what is its real purpose, both now and in the future? Why was it being built? And where is it going? And so I want us to look this morning then at those three things. The first one then being the sure foundation. And if we look at verse 20, one of the things we might ask ourselves, okay, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And for many of us in this room, we go, okay, apostles, yeah, those those are the, the people who, in many cases, wrote much of the New Testament. I kind of got a good idea of who apostles are. Jesus gathered the twelve with him, and they were the apostles, and so we can see that they would have some importance. But who are the prophets? Who are we talking about here? And because of other places in the New Testament where clearly what's in view is the Old Testament prophets, many people are satisfied to say, well, the apostles and the prophets, and those prophets are the Old Testament prophets. The problem that we have here is twofold. One is is that the grammatical language here would allow us to do that because it says the apostles and prophets. So there's that one article for both these words, and then we could draw a strong argument for that, and some have. But Paul uses this same argument again, that it is with the apostles and prophets, down in chapter 3, he draws that same analogy, that same idea, that same order, that same structure, which gives us some indication that Paul does not have in mind the Old Testament prophets. What he rather has in mind is the prophets that were with the apostles in the New Testament, that what's... Being talked about here, the foundation, if you will, is not merely the apostles, but those who were gifted during that special age after Christ's resurrection, as the gifts of the apostles were going forth, that there were prophets who were able to preach and teach truth. And so that maybe begins to help us understand what the foundation is. Those are who the prophets are. In what way then are the apostles and prophets the foundation, we might ask? Because there's a sense in which we want to be really careful because we don't want to say, well, the foundation of God's temple is built on human beings. And we are told in other parts of the Scripture, the foundation of the church, the foundation is Christ Himself. That Christ is the one who has laid the sure foundation. He is the foundation. and We don't take away from that if we consider the words rightly that Jesus tells to Peter and Matthew. He says, upon this church, or upon this rock, I will build my church. And obviously we know that some churches in their tradition have taken that so literally that they've made Peter the first great pope of the church. And they've made him this person whom Scripture does not seem to make him. He sees them as one of the twelve, not the supreme of the twelve. And in fact, Peter is not even the head of the church in Jerusalem during his own time. It's rather Jesus' brother James, who wasn't even a member of the twelve. And we know he didn't come to faith until possibly after the resurrection. So what we see here then is there must be something that's at work here when Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. He must not mean so much Peter. And he doesn't so much even mean, I would say to you, the office that Peter would hold as an apostle. I think what he's getting at is the truth that Peter had just declared. Who do men say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But we know that Jesus prays and reminds the apostles that it is through their ministry in John chapter 17, it's through their ministry that men and women will be brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The church will be advanced and will grow up. And so there is a sense in which we still see Some foundational understanding of the apostles and the prophets. They have a unique role in the life of the church. And I want you to turn over with me if you have your Bibles with you. And if you don't, there should be some close to you that you can look at. Revelation, very last book of the Bible, chapter 21, second to the last chapter. And if you're there, lift your head up. That way I know I can go ahead and read. Thank you. Beginning in verse 9 of chapter 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. Like a jasper, clear as crystal, it had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And listen to what it says in verse 14. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And so there's a sense in which we must agree with the language that Paul uses here that the church, the household of God, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, specifically their teaching, their proclamation of the cornerstone and so let 's look here then at, at what it says here at Christ the cornerstone, what does this mean? i I have to tell you again that if you pick up commentaries, you're going to read two basic debates that are, I won't say raging, I don't know if they're really raging, but they're going on within the church. And I have found myself persuaded one way or the other over the years, and I'm at least going to tell you where I rest today, and hopefully that will be my, uh, my, my foundation, my cornerstone at this point. But some people have talked about the fact that in Ephesians... This word that's used there, cornerstone, could also be translated keystone or capstone. And if you go to Roman architecture, you will see that they will often build a an archway. That was one of their great geniuses in architecture, their addition into our, our western world and our ability to build bigger buildings, was they would build these great archways that would actually be supported by a capstone. And that as it would go up, you would go up. And so the focus of that building would end up being the keystone or the capstone. And yet, that capstone wasn't just there for for pretty sake. It was also there for the fact that it really did hold. It was a foundational piece to that archway working. You had to have a capstone. And so there are those who look at this passage and the overall feeling of, of Ephesians where this building is growing up and the final completed reality is this capstone None other than Jesus Christ sitting at the top of this archway. Now, if we just had Ephesians, that, I would say to you that that would hold with me. I would say, yeah, I can agree with that. The problem is, is the rest of Scripture seems to lead us in the other direction. And that is that there has been a cornerstone laid in Zion. A precious cornerstone. And Paul quotes it, And Peter quotes it. And they're quoting from Isaiah. And therefore we have to take our cue, I think, from the rest of Scripture and allow it to focus our attention here to where we really do believe that what is being focused on here is there is a foundation laid, but that whole foundation is based on a cornerstone. That the whole foundation being laid out by these twelve apostles and the prophets ultimately stands or falls on its staying true to the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the cornerstone. Isaiah 28, 16, just so you hear this, says, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. For those of you that don't know, cornerstones were actually placed into a building and the purpose is that they become the line, they become the plumb line, if you will, that as you build out the rest of the of the walls, and if you think about Paul here, he's saying that two Two walls are being joined together. Two people groups. Jews and Gentiles are coming together. And how are both of them defined a sure and straight plumb line? It's off the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so we see that while there's a dividing wall broken down, that what's being built in its place is this union of Jews and Gentiles based on the cornerstone. Paul says this in nine, in Romans nine thirty through 33 What shall we say then? What we see then is that the reality of what Paul is teaching us here is that this building being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, are built on the Gospel. Because that is the work and worth of Christ. That is the person and work of Christ. That the whole foundation is based on Christ. It's based on the Gospel. And that we need to come to grips and come to an understanding of the Gospel if we would continue to see this edifice built. We need to be growing in our understanding of the sufficiency of Christ. And I keep pointing us back to what we exist for so that we understand that again, when I say on Sunday mornings, Desert Springs exists to extend God's glory by savoring the work and worth of Christ, that this is no trite statement. It's loaded with theology. By savoring the work and worth of Christ. Because it's in doing that that we are once again reminded what is the plumb line. We are once again reminded what is it that sustains this church. It's not that we've got the greatest people in Tucson. Although I think we've got a lot of the greatest people in Tucson here. It's not that we've got all the right programs or that we've always got everything figured out exactly right. It's the fact that hopefully, as a church, we continue to focus our attention and our desires upon Christ and His work among us. That that's what drives us. That that's where our center is. That we focus all of our energies on saying, is this where Christ is leading us? And is this true to His Gospel? And as we seek that, I believe that we do not build in vain. The second point then I want us to look at is the growing temple. A question that Paul would certainly have in his, from his reader's mind is, okay, the temple is us. Okay, well, what does that mean? And what does that look like? How do we begin to understand that? Well, the thing that I at least want to do for us, which I don't know what Paul did. We know that Paul stayed in Ephesus for three years teaching them. So I'm sure at some point this reality came into play. But I want us to take us back, as I often do, back to Genesis. And what I want us to do there is to go back and remember the creation. And I want us to remember what happens there. God creates this world, fills it. Then He creates, we're told, a garden. Among all the creation, He creates a garden called Eden. And we know several things about that garden. We know that that's the garden where God met with Adam and Eve and walked with them in the cool of of the evening. We know that that garden had to be on a mountaintop. How do we know that? Well, four rivers flowed out of it. Geography demands, gravity demands, that if a place is high, that that's how things flow out of it. So the fact that four rivers flowed out of Eden tell us that Eden was on a mountaintop. Now for those of you that are already starting to put together the pieces from Revelation chapter 21, which is why I read the whole thing, remember we're told that he turns, John turns to see this city coming down out of heaven onto a mountaintop where he had been taken in the Spirit. And if we read on to chapter 22, we'd find out something interesting about that city. In the center of that city is Christ and God. And there is no real structural temple needed. But that city is made up of people, not necessarily elements. And we find out something else too, that out of that city flows a river, which is giving life to the nations. And then we would do our homework and we go, oh, Ezekiel talks about a big city being built and water flowing out from the altar. And we would start to realize that in the whole structure of Scripture, there has always been an understanding of a temple. And that when we remember that the mosaic structure of building this tabernacle, and Solomon and David, or rather Solomon and, and then Zerubbabel building and rebuilding the temple, that all of these were merely, all of these were merely looking at something greater, something more profound, which was not built with human hands—a temple not built with human hands. All of these were just types, shadows, of the real thing. And so what Paul begins to tell us here is, look at what his words say, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Adam and Eve were supposed to take the realities of Eden and spread it throughout the whole world. They were supposed to spread that temple throughout the entire globe. That was their creational mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Spread it. Raise up offspring who will fill the earth. And we all know what happened with them. They failed. But God basically worked His plan to where now what's happening, as I've already told you, the church is everywhere. It is growing into a holy temple that is filling the earth. But not because human beings are building it. What Paul is telling us is is that these things are growing in the Lord, which we know in the New Testament is, is a word used of Jesus. Jesus is building His temple. So what we see then is the people once divided are now being joined together. We might ask this question, what does that look and feel like? And see, this is where I really want to start to get. I've given you that big theological construct. Now let's bring it down really close and practical into our own lives. What does it look and feel like to be being built into a temple? Think about what happens in the life of any church. Christ builds with living stones. Peter tells us that we are all living stones being built together. And he builds with living stones. And guess what the material he has to work with is? Sinners. There are some things we know about sinners. They can often be very resistant material. We don't like to change. And if you think about a stone being built, and the builder is basically building the stones and etching them off, one of the things we know about the temple in Jerusalem was that when it was built by Herod, that every stone was so carefully cut that when it was put together, it looked like it just was perfectly made to mesh right up against the next stone. Which means that that stone had to be cut and worked on and honed and beat on until it finally was made smooth and would fit right up against the next stone. Well, think about what's happening in the life of our church. Not just our church, the church. The church. Christ is using his spiritual tools on us. And sometimes we don't like that. I don't like that hammer. I don't like it hitting on me. And if all of you are honest, sometimes you don't like it hitting on you either. And I'm always convinced that when I'm being when I start looking up at those other stones, I'm going to be made to fit up against. I'm not sure I really like the idea of being Put up against those. Why don't you fool me and shave me for those stones over there? They look a little cooler, or they're at least a little more like me. And of course, we all think we're cool. I mean, this is one thing you need to realize. I don't care whether you're—you know—we have all these societal terms like jocks and you know the band folks and all these different people. But you realize that band people think they're cool because they're band people, and they talk about the jocks like, Ugh. you know, of course, the jocks and the cheerleaders. What well, they're cool then they talk about the band. And it just goes around. You know, the computer techie cons. I mean, have you ever met a computer person that doesn't think they're cool? (laughs) I mean, that stylish pocket protector is awesome. That's why they all have one. I'm really trying to get you to understand that we all like to be around people we like. And what Jesus does is He says, guess what? I'm going to throw you all into this big mix and start stirring it up and start honing the blocks fitting you to go up against another person that you may not really like, that may not be very much like you, that really maybe annoys the crud out of you. But here's your confidence. Jesus Christ is honing that block. And Jesus Christ is honing you. And when He is done, those blocks will fit together perfectly in a way that you'll be able to say, it's pretty cool if I can use that vernacular to be next to this person. And some of you have experienced this over the years. Some of you have been in the church long enough to realize that, you know what, that person that I used to not think so much of has become precious to me. I am grateful to be built right next to that block. Even though if you had talked to me 10, 12, 13 years ago, I had my doubts. I wasn't really sure what God was up to. I may have even secretly been hoping that that block would go to another one of the the parts of the temple elsewhere around the globe. But the reality is, is that Jesus is building His temple. The process is painful, but Christ is a faithful and loving builder who will build and prepare the habitation of the triune God and His people, and that's our confidence. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. What is that place that Jesus is preparing? It's this temple. It's this building. It's this structure that He is growing up into this great edifice of God's glory. Well, my third point then I want us to look at is the dwelling place. What is the purpose of the dwelling place? If we look here at this text, it tells us in verse 22, In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so we know that Jesus is at work building, but He's using the Spirit to accomplish this. And one of the things I think it would be helpful for us to remember and think about is this. Two two things that are happening as Paul writes this letter. In Ephesus, there was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was the temple built to Diana, or Artemis. Or Artemis. However you want to pronounce it, I've heard it all three ways. Diana was, was, was the goddess, and then her, her other counterpart, the same name, Latin and Greek, Artemis. So what you have then is this huge temple. Seven wonder, one of the seven wonders of the world, enormous. And Diana, or this rock that had fallen out of heaven that I assume must have been shaped somewhat like what they thought Diana looked like, which was placed in the back of this great temple. And here are the Ephesians. We know from the book of Acts that great is Artemis. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they hated Paul because he had basically turned their idol-making business upside down. And they were afraid that if this city starts to go after this Jesus, if they really get excited about Christ, we're sunk. Our whole industry is tanked. And so realize that's on one side of this, this great, huge temple to Artemis. But realize too that Paul also has in the back of his mind that temple in Jerusalem that had been built that was supposed to be the reflection of heaven that was supposed to once a year have blood brought into it and poured across the mercy seat and that the high priest would go in there and make intercession for the people. And yet, at the time Paul writes, what he's really saying is this. Both these temples are not the holy habitation of the living God. That temple in Jerusalem is not where God's glory dwells any more than that temple where Diana or that rock is said to be there. There is no life in either one of those temples. The life has been placed within the people of God. Paul cries out in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that you individually are the temple of the living God? And later on he says, do you not know that we all together are the temple of the living God? The habitation of His Spirit? Jesus had promised that when He went away, that the Spirit would come and that He and the Father would come and dwell with us, within us. They would dwell in us as the temple. No longer a place, a structure that's built with human hands, but this temple, this building, this structure being knit together by the very hands of the living God, just as surely as He put together Adam, as He formed Him out of the clay. The great passage. This this passage basically drives us back to reflect on. Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman. And I'm going to ask you again to turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and look at chapter 4. You look down at verse 20. I'm going to lift my head up so I can see if you guys are there for the most part. Okay, in verse 20, this is what the woman says. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews." But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is a spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Now you see the power of that passage that Jesus said to that Samaritan woman and it's reality that the Apostle Paul is declaring to these Ephesians and those around Asia Minor. The reality is is that it's not in Jerusalem and it's not in Samaria. The reality is that wherever the people of God gather together in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit with the truth that the apostles and the prophets proclaimed, none other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth which sets people free, that when you gather together with those two things, there is the temple of the living God. There is the beauty and the reality of everything that heaven has set its affections upon. And I want you to think about that. Heaven, the triune God, has set His affections upon upon us to form us and build us into a great temple. A dwelling place for the Most High God. What somehow this must do for us is we must then be able to say, God is good. God is faithful. God is glorious. It shouldn't be hard for us if we think about all these things we've been told. Remember at the beginning of Verse 11, as we entered into this section, Paul said, therefore, remember. So in conclusion, I want you to think about this. Remember that our great God has provided for us a firm, sure, solid foundation with Christ Jesus Himself as the cornerstone. That our great God is joining us together and growing us into a great and glorious temple for His worship. We don't have to worry if the construction is going to get done. We don't have to worry if... People have gone off to handle a hurricane and other things like that, so construction grows to a halt here in Tucson. Jesus Himself is building. And our great God is building us together. As the song says, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. Building us together as a dwelling place to promote and display His glory to the nations. We are made to display and declare the greatness of our God. So, next Sunday, when we gather together, it might be a good thing if the greeting that you offer to the other person who's standing next to you is, welcome to God's house and have a better understanding of what you mean. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.